say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. To get us started today, welcome back to the show. I'm here with Caitlin Smith. She is at Jupiter Power, which is a leading developer, owner, and operator of standalone utility-scale battery energy storage. They have 650 megawatts, which is a lot, of operational projects in Texas with over 300 uh, megawatts in near construction. They have 200 uh, megawatts specifically, which will be in Houston, which will be the first of a kind for an urban battery storage project of its size. They also have 11,000 megawatts in development across the United States. They specifically have intellectual property for price forecasting and battery dispatch, which optimizes both revenue and battery performance when it gets put on the grid. So Caitlin, Tell us a little bit about what you guys do. Well, that I I think I gave it to you in the intro, it sounds like. Um, Jupiter Power, we are, as you said, uh, a developer, owner, and operator of utility-scale battery storage projects. And I, I think that's important to kind of note all three. So we have a mm-hmm. large development p- pipeline, but we, we are not flipping these projects. We are using our expertise to then keep owning and operating them. And and importantly, also, we have steel on the ground already. It's 650 megawatt hours, actually. Okay. When you're talking about batteries, it's a little bit different than any other generation. I think it's closer to the 425 megawatts. But when you put that hours on that, that's kind of that max power, that max energy that you can discharge for an hour. So we're talking about 650 megawatts that can be discharged for an hour. That's what we have in the ground that we're owning and operating, and you articulated that as well. Um, it's very technical. A lot of expertise goes into that, a lot of um, intellectual property to forecast prices exactly when you mm-hmm. are charging, when you are consuming, and when you are discharging, when you are producing generation. And so we are doing that, and we have a pipeline, as you said, in in Texas and ERCOT as well as across the country. And we are really excited about this 200-megawatt-hour project in Houston city limits, it's it's you know a urban project. We're super excited about it. Should be the first of its size in any city, um, and I I think it's really cool. I think storage is perfectly suited for a city actually because it helps a lot with things like uh, congestion. So I know in Houston a lot of times you have trouble getting power into the city, building transmission lines, and that comes to a comes at a big cost to consumers. So it helps with that. Um, and its storage is a lot less land intensive mm-hmm. than renewable energy. So I think it's about a tenth the land use mm-hmm. of solar. So instead of, you know, 100 acres or thousands of acres, it's, you know, maybe 10 acres to have that large size. And then, but it's still that zero emissions power that you're probably wanting in, in, in an urban area. Yeah, no, interesting. And 
you know, people on the, on the show know I'm an engineer. I should know the difference between energy and power. But I, and I appreciate you making that distinction oh boy. because the uh, <laughs> I'm reading the mega. I, I don't know here. if I did energy and power. <laughs> no. Sometimes I I get a little confused, I and know. I know after Yuri, there's a lot of like, what's the difference between load and demand and and things like that. Um, I would call that the the capacity, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. the amount. And so yeah, you, the the kind of flat megawatts in the ground is the say you have 200 you have a, a 200 megawatt project but if it is 2 hours duration mm-hmm. you have the capacity to yeah. put out 400 megawatts and and I, I think that the distinction is important for folks who don't understand how ERCOT works where mm-hmm. we you know we have a market that is dynamic where power comes on and off and and it happens relatively fast and if i recall um we we talk about 15 minute increments here in in Texas and power itself comes mm-hmm. on and off in mm-hmm. shorter increments and and there is a need to have energy and capacity that has a duration to it but you also need to come on and and provide power instantly and i think as end consumers most people think about how power is just flipping a, a light switch mm-hmm. and having this kind of energy um available to make it work like a light switch is important and 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 developers like yourselves have to think about duration and capacity in a way where, where the rest of us just think, ooh, my lights are on. <laughs> well, you know, for storage, you have to think about it. And, and you know, candidly, it's kind of a, a criticism, right? Mm. Because it's you have that many megawatts, but the question is, how long is it mm. going to last? But it is a little bit, right, you are flipping the way maybe a traditional electricity engineer thinks. Because if you have maybe a coal plant or a gas plant, you are accounting for some startup time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. From where the consumer switches that light on, the, the coal plant isn't at full capacity, right? So that's, I think, you know, it could be 15 minutes. It could be a two-hour startup time. You have to account mm-hmm. for that. And so with batteries, you're kind of doing the opposite, right? You can be flipped on in in seconds, but then you are lasting the hour or two hours before you have to recharge again. Yeah. And, and so uh, tell me about your current role and, and ultimately how you got there or got here with Jupiter. Sure. Um, at Jupiter, I, I am the head of uh, government and regulatory affairs, communications and ESG. And, and I know ESG is kind of a, a hot political topic. So I always think about, should we change that? Should we say sustainability? Um, I, I think it always means the same thing, right? I think whether you want to criticize it, it's kind of this idea of going to less emissions and whether you want to, again, the the kind of semantics, whether you want to call it climate change or not, it's, you know, if you're seeing this issue that should be addressed and you want to go to lower emissions, I think that is something that that you really should help with. Um, and why Jupiter got interested in that is our, our kind of founders, most of them come from renewable energy and, and batteries you know, you have to charge to produce energy. So when the grid is still not 100% clean, you are not 100% clean when you are charging. But that power you are emitting is zero emissions. And I think that is a good thing. So we wanted to make sure we were talking about this good thing that we were doing that is kind of inherent to our business model. My background is largely on the um, government and regulatory affairs side. And mostly in Texas, Um, I worked for what is called the Independent Market Monitor to ERCOT. So I have a background in the really technical, wonky kind of wholesale market design of ERCOT. So the the people who are buying and selling power on a wholesale level, um, the, the Independent Market Monitor is set up to, well, 
first, catch market manipulation. It's something that was put in place after Enron. And second, advise on that market design. So I've had a number of different roles kind of in the government and regulatory space, um, mostly in renewable energy. I've, I've worked for a utility-scale wind developer. Um, when URI happened, I was consulting, and I had a lot of clients, and, and I was coming from kind of this neutral voice because we had a lot of clients. I couldn't speak for one and not the other. Um, or against one and, and, you know, in favor of the other. And so I had this opportunity post-storm to do a lot of media and a lot of speaking. And I felt it was really important to educate consumers on kind of just how the market worked without kind of pushing for something, just this is how it works. You need to know what, what happened and, and what could change that potentially. Um, and so I got a lot of personal experience doing media and communications and kind of learned how to vet that all out for myself, right? Who's trying to spin a story, who's not. And so I worked that into this role at Jupiter. So I'm covering communications as well. And I really, really enjoy that. And we've had a lot to communicate about. Um, you know, we, we have that 650 megawatt hours in the ground, and that is six operating projects. So th three are smaller and three are, are bigger. Um, we also closed a, a debt financing on that portfolio, which was kind of a first-of-kind financing for that technology. So I've gotten to put a lot of press releases out for Jupiter, which has been really fun. Uh, amazing. So um, I appreciate so much every single thing in your history and every single thing that you just talked about. Um, I am a policy person and a former comms person. Yeah. So that is so important when we talk about climate and we talk about the energy transition, especially in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so we need more people who are out there bringing all of those things together, right? Engineers and finance bros, bless them. Um, the story is what changes people's minds, right? And it is a it's hard to talk about energy. It's hard to talk about the difference and the nuance between um load and demand, it's right? Really and hard. power and electricity. So you are you are doing amazing. Yes. Um you also had me the first time I heard you speak, um former city chief sustainability officer, you can take the girl out of the city, but you cannot take the city out of the girl. When you said first urban battery storage project in Houston, mm -hmm. right? So tell me about, tell me about that. Houston loves to be the first for good things, right? Um, why Houston, right? Well, so, so it's the first of its size. I, I think we have some probably utility scale in, in Houston, probably smaller, um, maybe the, the 10 megawatt hour. And so we're talking about a, a 200 megawatt hour. When I say that, I think ERCOT, who we've already spoken about, but they, they are who kind of operates the power in Texas. They usually say um, one, one megawatt is 200 homes at peak. So we are talking about, what is that, 40,000 homes at peak for an hour. Mm -hmm. um, so for that sunset hour, when, when the sun's going down, so the solar energy is going away, but it's still hot in Houston, we're talking about a project that could do 40,000, power 40,000 homes. Um, so to get a little technical, the way batteries work on the grid, they charge directly from the grid. Um, and so it's kind, of, it's kind of, you know, very, very loosely, it's the sort of buy low, sell high. But in, in ERCOT, we have a very specifically priced market. You have um, different, we call them nodes that are priced differently. After URI, I think a lot of people are 
you know, experts are paying attention and they go on ERCOT or they have the app and they look at the heat map of prices and you see that red. And then a lot of times Houston is that red. And that's indicating that specifically in Houston, you have a lot of people who live here who want power and maybe less of it um, because it, it is hard to buy or to build a new gas plant in Houston, right? There's there's permitting, you have to finance it, um, and then you have to go through the air permits and everything. So there might not be as much generation local to Houston, and then there might not be enough transmission to get generation, you know, like wind farms from West Texas into Houston. A battery is kind of perfect for that because, you know, overnight or 10 a.m., kind of the lull periods, we could be charging when there are lower local prices. And then at that time where you're seeing the red, we could discharge. So our operating projects right now, as well as the other battery developers operating projects right now in Texas, are, are largely in West Texas. And it actually is kind of the same idea when you go to the like 4,000 foot level or whatever, 20,000 foot level. In West Texas, you have all those wind farms out there and no people. And so you have no way of getting the generation that exists to the people. And mm -hmm. so that's at a very high level. That's what's happening in the urban area as well, right? There's people who need it and maybe not a way to get the power there. And so if you have a battery, when the people need it less, right, in the middle of the night or 10 a.m., we could charge. And then when they need it, we could discharge. And as I said at the beginning, I think a battery is really well suited for an urban area. There's not those emissions issues when you're discharging. And it's a lot less land intensive, right? Wind, you need the resource. And solar, you need the resource as well. But, maybe you know, maybe it is hot and sunny here, but there's just not the land that you need for that amount of megawatts. Absolutely. So you, you are spot on about winter storm Yuri kind of mm -hmm. changing the game, right? That people pay so much more attention. But it's not just regulators. It's not just the industry. Like, Houstonians care. They you do. can go online and you can see what's going on and people care about the outage map and they they have so much uh, more information at their fingertips, but also concern, rightly so, right? That was a rough time for us all. So what would it be like if you, like for a Houstonian, how would this change your experience? Would they notice at all? Like, what does that mean? Um, I love how you talked about the emissions, how you talked about the footprint, because that those are things that communities care about so much. And so you are helping bring uh, clean energy into communities in a uh, much smaller footprint yeah. manner. You know, um, so, so I, I agree with you. And that's kind of how I got into the communications part of, of the role, right? People do care a lot more. And I, I think it's a convergence of things. You know, I think energy, electricity is a lot more personal than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I, I've heard, you know, different, I don't know who to attribute this to, but but different jokes about it, right? Um, you you didn't want people to be thinking about energy because if they were, it was probably bad, right? I, th I think there's a joke, something like toilet paper, right? You're not thinking about it until it's out mm -hmm. and that's bad. And, you know, I think traditional utilities, their communications plans are to kind of not say anything about it, right? They don't want you to have to think about energy or electricity because when you do, that that's probably a bad thing. Obviously, everybody had to think about it during URI. It made it much more personal. But I also think 
technology is making things a lot mm-hmm. more personal. You know, I, I think we have a lot more um, electric vehicles. You know, for, for Texans, we are looking at having, you know, electric pickup trucks. I think the technology is making it a lot more personal. I think people people like kind of seeing that controller right. I think the people who have the apps where they can have solar panels or generators through the house, it's kind of like a game, right? They want to beat themselves and, and conserve more energy. And so I think it's a convergence of all of that. Um, and it is really hard to talk about, as you said. You know, I, I kind of usually say when I'm doing interviews, my hot take is not having a hot take. And a lot of times the answer boils down to like, it's just really complicated. Um, and and so I respect, you know, people like yourselves and journalists who try to explain it. And that's going to be my answer to your ultimate question. You know, the people who experienced Yuri, how is this going to change things for them? It's really complicated. Um, I, I think it is a good thing for Houston because I think it fits into the resiliency and sustainability plans because of that zero emissions and because it's something that can do- get done really quickly, right? We um, we are, I think, through permitting and we are um, close to construction, but we could have this project and aim to have this project online by the end of next mm-hmm. year. So it's a lot faster. And I think that that resonates with people to to see, you know, this is enough power for 40,000 homes and it wasn't here during URI and now it's here. Um, when you're talking about those situations like URI, though, the way people um, lose power is kind of on a grid wide level. So I can't promise you, I don't think anybody can promise you, right, that a, a coal plant or a solar plant or a wind farm or a battery next to your house means you're less likely to lose power. But I think having that next to your house and it having zero emissions, being able to get there really quickly um, and help with those high wholesale prices in, in times of near emergency, I think should make an impact for people. Yes. And so huge important point is that Yuri was enormous, right? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. 50,000, you said enough power to uh, power 40,000 homes, yeah. 44,000. I think 50,000 homes in winter storm Yuri alone had their pipes burst. So they essentially flooded from the inside. Yeah. So um, there is no silver bullet. There is no mm-hmm. one thing. It's like, oh, you have a battery now. That's not going to happen. And it was a very long issue. So what I think I'm hearing from you and what I really appreciate about this is like it is it is part of the solution, right? It is part a puzzle piece. We need a lot of puzzle pieces. Yes. There are many, many, many more homes in Houston, just like yes. you said. And and because of the complexity of the grid, just because you live next door to something does not mean you have power. But uh, what are your other alternatives? Like, do you want to live next to a really, really large natural gas generator or a diesel generator? Do you want all of your homes on your street to have generators? Um, you know, like what are the trade-offs yeah. in terms of air quality, in terms of sound, in terms of like quality of life? And so um, maybe another question that is take the, take the, it's not even a once in a 500 year anymore, but like <laughs> take the, the Yuri out of the equation and instead like what, how does your technology work on a daily basis? Like what's your business model? When would you um, guys turn on? When would you sell? Like what does that look like? Yeah. Because there are events going on all the time that you could help. Yeah. Um, and and I will say for myself and, and for Jupiter, you know, I, I talked about the ESG and, and I said climate change, which I usually don't say, but we, we kind of 
we like an all of the above approach, right? I, I don't know that I, you know, love my coal plant or the love the existing coal plants, but we, we agree with you'll probably need natural gas as part of the solution. And when I'm talking about the size batteries that we do, these are all kind of supply side solutions, right? A, a large coal plant, a large gas plant, a large battery, a large solar, a large wind farm. That's kind of a supply side situation and solution. There, there's consumer side batteries, right? But we kind of really see that as lowering the consumer demand. So if you have a battery in your house and solar panels, that is good. That's just not what I'm talking about. That's kind of a, a consumer situation. And the way I would see that and the grid would see that as that's just less demand that the consumers have. And, and I think that's part of the solution too, right? I think it's a true all of the above. It's keeping some of the gas plants, it's building batteries, mm -hmm. it's building solar, it's building wind, it's more transmission, and it's some of those consumer side solutions as well. To your question on how we operate day to day, it, it's a new technology. Um, and so, you know, what what we do, what I am finding, we we own a significant fleet of batteries, but there's other battery owners here too in Texas. And I think you would find that it's a lot more disparate the way people are operating than say like a, a gas or a coal, right? It's kind of, those are the flip the switch and they stay on or, or right a nuclear at the, the other end of the extreme. That's a flip the switch and it stays on for a long time. Um, I think a, a battery, everybody's going to have a little bit of a different strategy. It is not though, it's not going to be what it sounds like. It's not Sometimes storage sounds like it's just going to sit there and be like a, a water tank full. It's not that. And then it's also not we fully charge up to 200 megawatts and then we fully discharge down to zero from 200. It is more like you are taking the price signals you mm -hmm. see. And so a, in ERCOT, a high price should reflect the need for power. And so we'll we'll try to discharge when we see that. And then we'll try to charge when it goes lower. And it's more kind of like a trickle than doing it full on and full off. Mm -hmm. and, and Does that, that make sense? And that's no, part that's of optimizing perfect, yes. the, the value. It's optimizing right? the value, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the way we locate in ERCOT and we're able to do it in ERCOT because of the energy only market and the nodal market, it's so specific, mm -hmm. right? You can look at in West Texas exactly where there is a transmission constraint, where there's all this wind and it can't get to people, you can locate that specifically. Mm -hmm. And so then you are charging when that wind is blowing overnight at the, the negative prices, and then you are able to produce energy when people need it at maybe the sunset hour. Yeah. So why is the time now to do this for Jupiter versus 10 years ago? It wasn't just that there was a winter storm and now we need storage, right? Why? What's the technology or market factors? Well, we, we started 10 years ago. Okay. You know, <laughs> at Jupiter, my CEO, um, Andy Bowman, likes likes to talk about this. I think he he saw something, and I'd have to find it. I think it was Bloomberg, maybe, that said this is the like first decade for storage. Mm -hmm. So he talks about how we were working in kind of the negative mm -hmm. years. Um, my, my boss, our chief operating officer, worked on a pilot storage program, the first utility scale storage program in, in Texas, it's no trees. Mm -hmm. And that was 10 years ago. And so she's been doing storage as long as you can. And but but you can look at ERCOT does those graphs of how much storage is online from 2012 to 
maybe 19. It was just those megawatts from the one project. And then maybe two, three years ago, you started seeing storage projects come online. It's kind of like anything else, right? You just need the economics to work out. Um, standalone storage before the IRA was a little bit trickier to finance um, because you did not get an ITC for standalone storage. You could get one if you co-located with solar, but you had some requirements to charge from that co-located solar. And so you would finance that co-located storage and solar more like a regular solar and you could do a PPA. With storage in ERCOT, you really weren't able to do PPAs as much. It was more kind of uncontracted and, and merchant. And so you were banking on the fact that you would be able to use those price signals in ERCOT and your very sophisticated <laughs> intellectual property, if you're us, to see when those prices were high. And that helps you not only with your revenue, but that indicates when customer need is. Mm -hmm. And that's the really cool thing about the ERCOT energy only market. So it's it's not now, it's 10 years ago. And and we're really glad that we started before. Um, you know, obviously we had the the Inflation Reduction Act pass. And so I think a lot of people are looking at storage and saying, well, it, it is now, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they could only think about financing it if they were solar plus storage before. And now they're like, okay, cool, we want to get in on this. Um, but maybe they don't know how because it is a it, it's hard for some people to wrap their minds mm -hmm. around. You have to charge and discharge. So we're glad we had already started. Um, in non-Texas places, sometimes the the development is a little bit harder. You have to you're in a queue for the ISO mm -hmm. because of the kind of cost allocation issues. So we are lucky that we were ahead of it. We have really good queue positions. We have you know permitting in different places. We have really good relationships already with our suppliers. And so that puts us in a position where we already know how to build standalone storage. But the IRA has these other things like, you know, a bonus for domestic manufacturing. We know what we're doing. We can commit to buying capacity and we have existing relationships so we can work with suppliers and say, hey, bring some domestic manufacturing here. And we will support that because we know that we are going to build these projects. We're far enough along and we'll commit to buying that that manufacturing from the U.S. And so that I think that puts us in a good position to be a leader in that way. So talking talk more about the IRA, because okay. so many people are excited about this in a way that we haven't been in a long time um, in terms of technology deployment, in terms of clean energy. Um, it's like the clock has been set we have a set amount of time to use this money and everyone is trying to figure out how to do that. And so you just explained how your company has been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And so you suddenly found yourself like in a really good spot, right? Yep. How does that change your viewpoint? So you talked about supply chain and domestic manufacturing. Um, also, you know, energy communities are a big focus as well of the yeah. IRA. And so I think all of Texas is probably an energy community, definitely Houston. What does your horizon look like now and how has the IRA changed that? You know, I don't know that it has changed our immediate development plans. Um, as, as I said, you know, we, we figured out how to do standalone storage in a way that we could get steel in the ground. So we were looking at opportunities where there's a lot of renewables maybe and no way to, to get it to consumers. There's some congestion. And so like I talked about how we could help with that in, in Houston and West Texas, we were looking for opportunities like that across the country. 
Um, and we went ahead and, and got those queue positions in the different ISOs and started our development with the, the land and the permitting and everything. And, and we have those relationships from bringing six projects online already. Um, and so we'll continue with that. It de-risks the portfolio a little bit, right? It's a, it's a lot more um, options for financing and, and for revenue, right? Before maybe it was uncontracted and you were really having to operate in certain ways. And now maybe it opens the opportunity for more contracts. Um, the other thing that we talked about at the very beginning of this is, is the limiting factor on storage is that duration. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it opens the door for longer duration storage. I know everybody would love to see, you know, eight hour, 72 hour, you know, seasonal batteries. So we're hoping that that really opens to do the door for us to provide longer duration. So another question that you just made me think of, mm -hmm. how uh, how do you think about innovation in terms of new technology that's coming available? Like you said, um, batteries themselves have come a long way. We hear from startups all the time that are making batteries out of anything they possibly can. Um, what do you look for when you choose your technology? And how do you look at the next this the is, next next yeah. thing. This is a little out of my depth, um, but we we do have that expertise, right? I think we are really lucky at Jupiter to our founders and our leaders are people who have been doing storage, you know, as long as it has existed, right? We think it's the start now, but we we have people at Jupiter who've been working on storage for ten years, and I know even before the IRA, the technology was changing really quickly. I think our our chief technology officer told me that each new project we bring online, he's usually looking at a new type of technology because the the last one, even if it was six months ago, is usually already outdated or discontinued. Um, we have a really, we have a, you know, we're a young company and we have very young personnel, which I think you <laughs> could appreciate too. And so they they are looking kind of at everything, right? We're looking at hydrogen, we're looking at the the different chemistries of different batteries. Um, and I think it's just keeping an eye on all of that, keeping an eye on what I do, right? The different regulations, what there's incentives for, and then keeping an eye on what consumers want and what they'll pay for it. And you have to just have all those meet. So if you were to the startups out there who are listening, uh -oh. right? <laughs> I mean, what would, how would they get in touch? Definitely keep an eye on the regulations, right? Because that right now can be the, the golden ticket, yeah. right? But um, what would your message be to them? To the technologists? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, do good yeah. things do good things. yes okay do good things yeah i you know i think i don't know if i'm the right person for this question <laughs> um because i i think you know if you are a technologist or entrepreneur i think you have to have i'll call it you know some healthy optimism mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you have to really believe in in something and i think i tend to be a little bit more on the on the practical side and i think that would be what my advice would be right I, I think it is so cool to hear about different technologies and you know there i've i've been to lobbying days where people are talking about you know new lead acid mm -hmm. batteries i think it is really good to be aware though of exactly what it takes to get that to commercialization right because i think you can start talking about it in a lobbying or a communication sense, but I think you need to have a clear idea 
of what incentives or, or what conditions you're going to need to get that to not your cool idea, but to something that is is commercialized, right? Something that makes sense for people to to pay for. So you are a policy entrepreneur, right? You have like helped that. bring all <laughs> kinds of things forward. Um, and, 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 you know, talking about energy storage in Texas and ERCOT, I'm sure has been challenging at times. Um, bringing things forward after URI, where everything yeah. was going 50 miles an hour, 50 million miles an hour. Um, everyone's trying to put their ornament on that Christmas tree. Um, during session. So like talk a little bit about how you have helped move things forward, what that's like. Well, I like I like policy entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I have another stakeholder who works uh, for, for a company that has a large battery and he always says I do grassroots advocacy because I kind of I really like to coalition build. Um, you're you're right. After Yuri, things changed a lot. Um, I was kind of surprised, though, at how much things also stay the same. Um, I've been working. That's a in, whole other story. Yeah, yeah. I've been working in the Texas policy yeah. market, right, or policy arena for for ten years, and we've heard the same conversations come up before, right? We've heard, you know, we need more transmission. We've heard we need, you know, some kind of capacity payment for generation, and so a lot of the arguments we've heard before. And I was kind of, you know, so it, it's kind of surprising how unsurprised you are, right? Things kind of do stay the same. Um, for batteries specifically, we, we just kind of like to make the point on how much this has grown um, since URI. During the storm, I think we had 200 megawatts of batteries online in ERCOT. So going back to that, you know, one megawatt is 200 homes at peak. That is, uh, I guess, 4,000. Um, or no, that's the 40,000. And, and for reference, right, that Houston project I'm talking about Jupiter bringing on is, is that size. So that's what we had total on the grid during URI. Um, about a, you know, a year after that, when we were looking at kind of our, our smaller winter events last February, we had 2000. So 10 times that online. Um, right now, I think we have closer to 3000 mm. online in ERCOT. So it's really just growing. And I think it is important, right, not to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. I think that indicates what is working in the market, right? The, the things in the energy-only market that are working, you know, the, the price signaling that is telling you where to locate a battery without somebody getting a, a regulated rate of return on it, um, without a capacity market, I think you have to note that those things are still working, you know, of course, we have implemented a lot of operational things that, that our batteries are doing, too. All the weatherization, all the coordination with ERCOT and the Public Utility Commission, and, and those are all really good things. But I think that battery growth indicates kind of the things in the energy-only market that are working. Um, I will say that for, for batteries, like any other technology, the, the regulatory uncertainty is really mm. difficult, right? Um, I think it is hard to react to something like URI. You know, we, we were in legislative session at that time. We're only in legislative session in Texas six months every two years. And so those legislators had to, you know, figure out what the grid was, figure out what went wrong during URI, and then try to pass laws to fix it in a matter of three months. And I actually, they get a lot of criticism, but I think they did a good job, right? I think 
that's a really technical subject matter. And so if you're at the legislative level, you want to make sure everything is addressed, but you don't want to make everything so prescriptive that it can only be changed again in law and, and that you're not letting kind of the experts mm -hmm. figure it out. And so I, I think they did a really good job. I think the kind of insert uncertainty in the interim where we try to figure out, are we going to a whole new market design um, where we are still doing some of the knee-jerk reactions? We, we are doing these things in ERCA that they're calling conservative operations, and it's just kind of you know knee-jerk reactions, and, and those all come at consumer costs. So I, I think the uncertainty is hard, and I think it's just kind of a matter of making sure we have a holistic approach to the market. And that is difficult when you have a new technology that maybe not everybody understands. Yeah. And, and I think for, for entrepreneurs, uh, especially in energy and climate tech versus mm -hmm. software, it is important to get involved in policy early. And policy yeah. is, is government. It is standards committees. It is the interfaces where we figure out what is correct and safe and and how we interface with all the other complex systems. And I think when 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 Laura says you're a, a policy entrepreneur, like that's what that is is going out and kind of Trademark. creating <laughs> like creating, really the, like creating those conditions that allow the right market solution to exist because we need it. And 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 I think that's a unique yeah. thing that happens here in Houston and mm -hmm. energy that you you would not see in in Silicon Valley, for example, because our systems are just more complicated and more integrated here. That's so. Why do you not think you would see it in Silicon Valley? Well, well I think in Silicon Valley, a lot of and, and this is me like <laughs> denigrating apps. An app doesn't require uh, a, a lot of other complicated systems. You're kind of at oh, the whim yeah, of yeah, the yeah. technology yeah. that's yeah. being developed it's, here. Yeah. Right, involves so much more policy from from the federal level to the mm. local level. So yeah. like, um, we don't really have zoning so much here in Houston, but I'm sure there's all types of permits and things that you have to get just to to locate, right? Yeah. All the way up to the IRA. And yeah. so, you know, an app, if an app messes up, you push an update, everything's okay. Um, you don't get that calls is not from the same who's right. mad at you. <laughs> right. If if you do something that interferes with people's um the, the availability of power when you turn that light switch on, like you're in a whole world of trouble. So policy truly has like a different level of interaction here. And I, I love that because I also <laughs> totally geek out about policy. Um, and I, I would kind of going back to the thing about ERCOT and how you said the legislature um, didn't necessarily do a ton, but also didn't, did a good job. Um, I, uh, that's a loaded question, but I, I will disagree. say that yeah. the, to their credit, the yeah. hardest time to make big systemic changes is after a disaster because, you know, that's the whole the, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. Like if you had done it before and mm -hmm. made the changes, people would have been like, rah, rah, why are we making these changes? But after the fact, you have this just like symphony of everyone under the sun coming forward. The city of Houston, we did our sustainability plan and our resilience plan after Harvey. Okay. And it was so, it, it was needed, right? Yeah. Period, end of statement. But it was hard because folks want to go back to the way they were, right? And you're saying this thing happened, we have to do things differently. And that's really hard. So I, I do appreciate how, what you were saying about how like they were, they had a short period of time to throw everything in and try to figure out how, this, this thing. I won't say it was completely unpredictable because it was actually 
predictable and it has happened before, yeah. right? So like that part, I think we should have fixed, but um, it's hard to fix a disaster. It's hard to think that you could, right? Mm. Policy is great. It's not going to solve every single thing. No. Um, and in a short period of time, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, you know, I, I was asked that when I was on a panel with a legislator, you know, they, I was asked grade, grade the, you know, session. And I, I do think they did well. I think you do want to keep in mind you don't want it to be overly prescriptive because then, right, so say you you think climate needs to really be addressed. If you put into law these plants need to be weatherized to eight degrees, it only... It, it can only be changed in law after that. So if you're, you go to the next storm and you're like, oh crap, it really needed to be negative 10 mm -hmm. degrees, then you have to pass another law. And so that's kind of a good reason for not wanting to be overly prescriptive. Um, not where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What you, you said something really good though. I mean, just like, <clears throat> oh, policy oh, yeah, isn't yeah, going to yeah, solve yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah. That yeah, policy is not going to solve everything, and it is hard. There's another point I always make, um, one of the bills that was proposed after URI said something like, these these plants that we're going to build will be available in all emergency weather conditions. I think the point of extreme weather, you know, I, I take your point that you you could be prepared and, and you could know that this has happened before. Or it's more likely to happen. The The point of changing climate and calling something extreme weather, I think, is that you don't know what it's mm. going to be. Right. I don't think it would be extreme if, if we sit down right now and we're like, we think it's going to be within this range. It's, it's not extreme until it's out of that range. Mm -hmm. And that is always going to happen. And so I think you can do your best to be prepared for that. But I think the point is that you don't know what that next event is going to be, right? I think it's not easy. It's incredibly hard. And it's incredibly hard, especially when different stakeholders have to pay for it, which is what policy making is. But the, the policy, right, you want to look at what happened. And you want to look at how it can be addressed and how it can be addressed in a way that works for the most people and provides the most reliability and is also affordable, but you don't necessarily know what that next challenge is going to be. And I think that that is really tough, right? I think people always want to ask, is the grid fixed? Are we ready for another URI? And you just can't know, right? You could do all the policy measures you wanted. You could have a blank check, but you still don't know because you don't know what the next event is going to be. Absolutely. And that's where getting back to the technology side of things, like I love policy and I can geek out on that. But if you don't have the technology, if you don't have companies like Jupiter Power mm -hmm. that are actually doing things, right, mm -hmm. they're taking that policy, putting it into action, putting stuff in the ground, sending electrons to the people and the places mm -hmm. that they need to go, um, then we're going to just have more and more events like this happening. Yeah. So final thoughts after our amazing conversation, and I really could keep talking about this for hours, like um, what would you want to leave our audience with? Is there any message? Is there any way that we can help you? Oh, boy. Um, so I'd, I want to leave them with policy entrepreneur. Now, um, <laughs> so so I, I, I want people to keep asking questions about the grid, to think about it more holistically. Um, and I, I, you know, I like this entrepreneurial and technology angle, right? I, I think people look at things like 
the IRA or certain incentives and think, you know, why are we subsidizing these things? And and maybe you don't want to subsidize things or maybe you don't need to. But I think my advice to those entrepreneurs and new technologists was make sure you have a route to commercialization. And I think that's the only way we're going to get to what we need next, right? We talk about batteries and the limit being the duration. Well, Say you think a one hour or two hour battery isn't enough. If you drive all of those out of the market, an eight hour battery isn't just going to show up like out of mm. thin air. So I think we really need to think about what it is we want long term and how to get there holistically. And then from my Caitlin point of view on the, on the you know policy entrepreneur, I, I really like to look at policy the same way I think myself and Jupiter like to look at technology and and the solutions to the grid being that all of the above approach. I think coalition coalition building and working with other people, whether sometimes it be a gas plant or sometimes it be a wind farm, I think that coalition building is really key to, to getting the right policies. I love it. I love it. Well, um, bring more, please. That's This is my message. Please. Um, Houston needs all the help that we can get. So. We're really excited <laughs> about it. We're really, and I could say so much more too. I think you know, I think consumers are, are what's driving clean energy, and so I, I want them to think about continuing to want clean energy and and wanting things that are ultimately cost affordable for them. Thank you. Yes. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. All right. All right.